0: The birth of a new baby is, is certainly an exciting event in a family. I'm sure we've all experienced that in various ways. We also know that when a baby is born, that's a life-changing event. The arrival of new life changes the lives of everyone else in, in the family. We know that a new baby brings sleepless, sleepless, ni- sleepless nights to the family. A new baby brings expensive to the family. Adjustments and sacrifices are required that the arrival of the new baby changes the status quo. Perhaps a a child who was the youngest in the family is no longer the youngest. Mom and dad's attention is now divided further, and and much of mom and dad's attention goes to the the newest, most demanding member of the family. Things change when a, a baby is born. These are things that we expect. We understand this comes with the birth of a child. What we don't expect is that the birth of a child will cause significant increase in tension within the family, that we don't expect it to create dysfunction within the family. And yet that is what we see in our text this evening. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, we saw Jacob married in the series that we're going through here, examining this section of Genesis that, that traces the life of Isaac, the generational link that we see in Genesis of God's promises that he gave to Abraham, to the people of Israel, it flowed through Isaac for one generation. We've been tracing that, and we've seen how God has passed those promises on down Isaac, and then through Isaac to the next generation with his son Jacob. The process so far of passing these promises along has not been painless. Each patriarch of the Israelite nation has been flawed in many ways. Abraham was flawed, Isaac was flawed, and now Jacob in particular has been a bit of a scoundrel as, as we've seen him so far in his life. He's been such a scoundrel that, you recall, he had to flee from his, his twin brother, his older twin brother, because he stole the, the, the blessing from his father Isaac by trickery. He, he fled, and as he fled, Jacob, if you recall, met God, and his life was changed. He, he's now a God worshiper, and yet the consequences of his life, the fact they had to flee from his brother and go elsewhere, and these consequences uh, from his life choices are still with him. In fact, the last time, if you remember, we observed Jacob, who is the deceiver, we observed him deceived uh, on his wedding night of all times, when his father-in-law swapped out which daughter Jacob was marrying. And Jacob w- awoke after his wedding night and discovered in the morning that he was married to Leah instead of Rachel, who he thought he was marrying. Rachel was the sister he loved. The first wedding, you also may remember, was shortly followed by a second wedding. Uh, Leah's father then let Jacob marry Rachel a week later, so now he ha- suddenly had two wives. Both of which are the, the daughters of his uncle, Laban. So, if you're keeping track of all this, the family tree is getting a bit complicated. The important thing to remember as we turn back to Genesis chapter 29, and as we pick up in verse 31, is that we were told at the very end of what we read last time, in, in verse 30 of, of chapter 29, we were told that even though Jacob is married to both Leah and Rachel, He loved Rachel more than Leah. You might recall, Jacob himself comes from a a dysfunctional family where his father favored his older brother and his mother favored him. That favoritism certainly did not generate family harmony. Well, how will loving, loving one wife more than the other work out? Let's pick up in verse 31 of Genesis 29 as as we read the record of Leah's first sons. Now the Lord saw that Leah was unloved, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Leah conceived and bore a son and named him Reuben, for she said, Because the Lord has seen my affliction, surely now my husband will love me. Then she conceived again and bore a son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am unloved, he has therefore given me this son also. So she named him Simeon. She conceived again and bore a son and said, Now this time my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. Therefore he was named Levi. And she conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she named him Judah. Then she stopped bearing. The narrative that Moses gives us in in these initial few years here of Jacob's married life is is rather bare. If you think about it, several years have to pass for four children to be born, as we just read. So the narrative is rather bare, but does highlight the source of the family conflict that that will develop. We're told right from the beginning, Leah was unloved. The, The word actually means Leah was hated or Leah was scorned. It's not a word, really, that we should find anywhere when it comes to describing a happy home. Proverbs 30:23 uses this word. It lists an unloved woman, a scorned woman, as one of the four things that can cause the earth to quake. In other words, this is one of the things that destabilizes society: an unloved woman. Yet that was Leah's life. Jacob loved Rachel. But he scorned her sister Leah, even though both women were his wives. And the Lord saw what was happening. So how did the Lord respond? We're told the Lord opened Leah's womb, but left Rachel barren. Remember, Rachel was the wife of Jacob's plans. Jacob had these these plans of how things would work. He would work for, for seven years for Laban so they could marry Rachel. That didn't work out. He agreed to work another seven so they could have her, after Laban pulled the switch room, but Rachel was really the the wife of his plan. By the time of our verse, Jacob is assuredly working at this time for Rachel. We're somewhere in that second seven-year period. He's working for her because of his love for her. His plan all along is to see the blessings of God's promises flow through Rachel, the woman of his love, God had told Jacob he'll have descendants beyond number, like the dust of the ground. In Jacob's mind, they'll come from Rachel. But God sees how Jacob is treating Leah, and he throws in a twist. He causes Rachel to remain barren, much like Sarah, Abraham's wife, was when we first met her back in Genesis chapter 11. Rachel is barren. The one thing that we're to see as we read these initial verses in our text this evening, is that children are a result of divine provision. No child is born by accident. God opens and God closes wombs as God wills. God is the ultimate cause of every pregnancy. Psalms 127 verse 3 clearly states, Children are a gift from the Lord. We're to see that gifting process in these verses. Now, I mentioned that the narrative is pretty barren during these childbearing years. What we're looking at, there's not a whole lot of information here. That's why it's surprising to really see how much space Moses gives over to describing the naming of each child. In fact, it really is through the names that, that are given to the children that the actual development in the narrative takes place. Now, I recognize this evening it may feel a bit dry, but, but we need to examine the name that each child is, is given so that we can see the development that Moses wants us to observe of God working within this family. So we'll start. Child number one, Reuben. Reuben. Apparently, even though Leah was the scorned wife, Jacob still maintains intimate relationships with her. This was not an a, a immaculate conception. What we learn through our series, through the Song of Solomon, is proper for a husband and wife to have intimate relations, and, and Jacob's doing that with Leah, and, and God opens Leah's womb, and the first child she has is a boy. I, I do find it interesting, as I read this, that Leah is the one who names the son, not Jacob. The mother names him, and Leah names the, the baby Reuben. Literally, as you see on the screen, Reuben means, look, a son, a son. Leah explains that she's given this name to her baby because the Lord has looked on her affliction and, Lord, and, and given this child. So she says, look, a son, a son from the Lord. There are very similar sounds in Hebrew between Reuben, the, the name, the, the name Reuben, and, and the phrase, look on my affliction. So she's using this wordplay with Hebrew sounds, this similarity to create the uh, sound, to create this wordplay so that every time she would say the name of her newborn son, she will remember that the Lord has blessed her affliction as the scorned wife. She has a son. We do not know how quickly things progress, but we do understand from the way things progress here that even though Leah bore a son to Jacob, that did not gain love from Jacob. But Leah quickly becomes, or relatively quickly, becomes pregnant again with child number two, Simeon. Simeon. Leah's second child is, is another son. Sin, Simeon means the one who hears. Leah states that she gave this name to the child because she knows that God heard of her condition. And God providentially blessed her with this baby in the face of all her, her affliction. God heard what was going on. After Simeon, Leah has a third son, Levi. Levi, Levi means to join to join. According to Leah, the, the name is expressing her hope that her husband Jacob will at last be drawn to her. She has now given him three sons. She's hoping that the third son will allow her to experience his affection. They will join together. One thing we should remember as we look at these names is that Moses is writing all of this record for the the newly founded nation of Israel. Remember, they're in the wilderness at this time. They're on their way from Egypt to the promised land. This great nation is joining up. By this point, each of these sons has become one of the heads of a tribe, the tribes of Israel. The tribe of Levi, for example, or by the time Moses is writing this, are the Levites. Levi is the ancestor of the tribe that God then sets apart for priestly service. Of course, as we read this verse, there's no hint of, of that future, their, their later priestly state. Levi is simply the third son given by God to Leah, the, unlo- the unloved wife, the son that she hopes will change Jacob's affections. After Levi comes son number four, Judah. Judah. Judah simply means praise, praise. Apparently by this point, Leah has resolved to praise the Lord alone. The affection that she yearned for from her husband has never come. She's still the unloved wife, and she's decided she is just going to praise the Lord regardless of her circumstances. When the first two sons were born, she recognized that the Lord had responded to her unhappy lot. With the third son, she hoped that Jacob might finally respond positively. Now she consoles herself by by praising the Lord regardless of her lot within the family. Certainly there is a lesson for us here, isn't there? We can praise God regardless of our circumstances. It doesn't matter what's happening, we can praise God. He is always with us and he alone is enough. Leah came to realize this with the birth of Judah and she expresses this in his name. At this point, Moses also records that Leah ceased bearing children. She no longer becomes pregnant. She stopped bearing. We don't know how many years have passed, but it would take, I would think, a few years for, for Leah to go through four pregnancies. And, and during these years, Leah is bearing sons, and, and Rachel remains barren. And that brings us to Bilhah's sons in chapter 30. Look at the beginning of the chapter. Now, when Rachel saw that she bore Jacob no children... She became jealous of her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children, or else I die. Then Jacob's anger burned against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who has withheld from you the fruit of the womb? She said, Here's my maid Bilhah. Go into her that she may bear on my knees, and through her I too may have children. So she gave him her maid Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has vindicated me and has indeed heard my voice and has given me a son. Therefore she named him Dan. Rachel's maid Bilhah conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. So Rachel said, With mighty wrestlings I have wrestled with my sister and I have indeed prevailed. And she named him Naphtali. Obviously, even though Rachel is the loved wife, she did not respond well to her sister having children. Moses tells us she became jealous. Now, I'm sure that all of us know the story of Joseph coming up. We, we know that Joseph and his brothers have some, shall we say, problems. It's significant that Moses uses this exact same word, this jealousy, to describe the discontent that developed between Joseph and his other brothers. And in Genesis thirty one, or thirty seven eleven. Moses says the brothers became jealous of Joseph. In, in that point, the discontent re- drove the brothers to eventually sell Joseph into slavery. It, in other words, this is not a mild discontent. This is not a mild jealousy. Well, here the jealousy drives Rachel to demand Jacob give her children. Of course, Jacob doesn't receive that demand very well. His, his anger burned against Rachel. Uh, it, it was a completely unreasonable Request Only God can grant children. Jacob's right about that. But you see tension and disharmony happening here. Rachel goes on and she follows the same custom that Sarah used back in chapter 16. Rachel brings her maid Bilhah to Jacob and gives him Bilhah as a wife in an effort to have a surrogate son through her maid. Certainly, this should cause us to recall Sarah's approach with Hagar when, when she brought Hagar to Abraham so she could have a, a, a child. And it should also cause us to remember that that brought great trouble into Abraham's household. There's no reason to anticipate in, in a family that already has dysfunction, there's no reason to anticipate that we'll have a better outcome here. On the surface, Rachel's plan works. Bilhah does bear a son to Jacob. Dan Here we encounter another son, Dan. Once more, Moses focuses in on the name. He gave us a little background to understand how this son came about, but the focus is on the name. Again, Jacob does not seem to have a part in the naming. Since this is a surrogate son, Rachel, rather than Bilhah, names the boy. Rachel assigns the name. Dan means, as it shows on screen, he has vindicated me. Whereas the names Leah assigned her sons all to to various degrees reflect her faith on the Lord. Lord, see my affliction. She's hoping for for, uh, the Lord to praise, so forth. This name that Rachel gives, it, it shows that she's had a very bitter struggle and she wants vindication. That jealousy that's burning within her shows itself here. She looks at this boy as God's vindication for her. It vindicates her as a wife. She no longer sees herself as barren. Following Dan's birth, Bilhah has a second son, Naphtali. Again, it's Rachel who names the, the baby, this time with a name that means my wrestling. At least in her mind, she's locked in a battle with her sister Leah. And she's, they're in this great battle to provide sons to her husband. And Rachel seems to see the, the birth of Naphtali as, as God rewarding her tenacity in this, in this struggle. Leah is unloved by her husband, yet has borne him four sons. Rachel's unable to bear children for her husband, and yet she's loved. Notice Moses is not recording the results of the conflict within the family during these early years. But these names that Rachel gives the surrogate son suggest there's plenty of, of conflict occurring. It's also possible that these children's births ha- have not been listed sequentially. that The births of Bill has children may have been interspersed with Leah's first four children because if the ceasing of Leah bearing children that, that leads to the next section. So it's possible Leah started bearing a son or two and then Rachel figured out she couldn't and she gave Bilhah to her husband as a surrogate. When Leah ceases bearing children, that leads us to Zilpah's sons. Leah decides, two can play this game. She sees Rachel playing the game of using a surrogate. She sees Leah, this is, sees that she's no longer bearing sons. So now she gives her maid, Zilpah, to Jacob as a surrogate wife. Look at verse 9. Then Leah saw that she'd stopped bearing. She took her maid, Zilpah, and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a son. Then Leah said, how fortunate. So she named him Gad. Leah's maid, Zilpah, bore Jacob a second son. Then Leah said, happy am I, for women will call me happy. So she named him Asher. Well, Leah's plan worked as well as Rachel. It's not long before Zilpah gives birth, and she gives birth, as we just read, to Gad. Gad. As in the case of Bilhaz, Leah here is the one who names. If not the, the actual birth mother of, of, of Zilpah, it's is Leah who names the baby. She considers the baby her surrogate child. And she gives the baby a name that means fortunate or fortune. Apparently she, she sees Gad's birth as fortune smiling upon her. I'll be honest, I'm not sure what to make of that. Other than to observe, it, it seems like it's less God-focused than the name she gave her first four sons. It's not explicitly God, but I'm not sure what to make of it. Anyway, she has a second, Zilpah, that has a second son as well. She rapidly has Asher. Asher means pronounced happy or pronounced blessed. Leah sees this birth as, as another indication of her happy lot in, in life in that while she is unloved by her husband, she has a happy lot because of all these sons that she's provided. She anticipates that even if her husband doesn't love her, other women, other women will consider her blessed. Her husband Jacob may fail, but she'll have the supportive praise of all of the community for her role as wife and mother, providing all these sons to her husband. If you can count, God's blessed Jacob with eight sons at this point. Certainly, we can see God's hand fulfilling the the promise of descendants he gave Jacob. At the same time, we continue to see the the tension and the dysfunction within the family. We see that Jacob's initial idea that Rachel would be the, the mother of the promises is nowhere in sight. And that brings us to Leah's second children. Look at verse 14. Now, in the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, Please give me some of your son's mandrakes. But she said to her, Is it a small matter for you to take my husband? And would you take my son's mandrakes also? So Rachel said, Therefore, he may lie with you tonight in return for your son's mandrakes. Then Jacob came in from the field in the evening. Then Leah went out to meet him and said, You must come in to me, for I have surely hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. God gave heed to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. Then Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my maid to my husband. So she named him Issachar. Leah conceived again and bore a sixth son to Jacob. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good gift. Now my husband will dwell with me because I've borne him six sons. So she named him Zebulon. Afterwards she bore a daughter and named her Dinah. Suddenly the, the narrative that we're reading here has just a little bit more texture to it. There, there's a little more story. We have this story of this mandrakes, and it's just suddenly it comes out after we've had just this sketch of, of this son's born, and here's the name, this son. Now we have this story of the mandrakes. Well, mandrakes were supposed to be an aphrodisiac of some kind. And Reuben, Leah's oldest, who at this point would probably be a young teen. Again, we don't have the years, but we know how that Jacob is with Laban for 14 years after he's married. So the oldest would be potentially a young teen at this time or, you know, 10 to 14, somewhere in that range. Anyway, he found some mandrakes growing wild in the field. And he brings them home to his mother, Leah. Well, Aunt Rachel sees these mandrakes, and she asks for them, apparently thinking that that they will help her become pregnant. (coughs) Really, the entire record is sad. Leah negotiates with Rachel. She negotiates a night with Jacob in exchange for the mandrakes. Jacob here is really presented as a commodity to be exchanged as part of the deal. He's not a husband leading his family. Look at verse 16. Jacob comes in from the field and told he's been hired by Leah for the night. Essentially, one night with him is the financial compensation she's to receive for the deal she made to give the mandrakes to her sister. There, there really is no way that I can see to put a positive spin on any of this. Jacob is not leading his family. He he's being passed back and forth between them like a bargaining chip in their conflict. Bottom line, Jacob spends the night with Leah and surprisingly, God gives her a fifth son of her own. Before we consider the son though, notice that Moses writes in verse 17, God gave heed to Leah. Leah was apparently praying that she would have another child. The fact that God listened again makes it clear that God is the one who's responsible for her pregnancy and, and any hope that carries for her to find love and happiness. It makes it clear that She, and by implications, Rachel, too, they do not need mandrakes. They only need God to listen to their prayers. So many times I I see different ones of us making very similar errors, if I stop and think about it. We we want something really bad. And and the world tells us if we will do A, B, and C, if we will use mandrakes to apply to this problem, then... Doing this will give us what we want. Just follow this formula, and that will give you what you want. So we do those things. We we listen to the philosophies of our culture rather than praying to God, the, the one who can truly do something to help us. We're just like these ladies too often. Well, Leah here does have a fifth son, Issachar. Not a great name, really. Issachar means got for hire. Lee is acknowledging through the name that God intervened and, and provided her with another son. She recognizes that God is the one behind it. God is ultimately the one who produces life. She also interprets the fact that God gives her son as di- divine approval, if you notice, for supplying her maid, Zilpah, to Jacob as the sergoat wife. She says, this is God's indication that I did right. Well, with the birth of his car, God seems to open... Leah's womb a, a second time, and soon Iska is far, followed by Zebulon. Zebulon means um, honor. Leah hoped, continues hope. She's been hoping all along. She continues hope that her husband will at last honor her for the many sons that she provides him. Of course, we have no indication that ever happened. And that leads to the final birth, really, that, that Moses records for Leah, Dinah. Dinah is the only daughter listed in, in this record. She's also the only one that we have no record of what the name means. We only know Dinah. Dinah, a daughter. Dinah is the only baby whose name's not explained. There, there's no significant attached. It appears that the Dinah is thrown into the list to achieve the goal of, of, of listing 12 children. Uh, that's a pattern that we've seen throughout the, the genealogies of Genesis that oftentimes there's been 12. The lack of explanation, though, for name most likely means, or at least suggests, that that this one won't play a key role in the formation of the nation. After all, the significance of the birth for the future nation was stressed by the wordplay. Each tribe, there was a a message here of of your part in the role the nation plays. Well, there's no wordplay for Dinah. That that suggests she does not have a significant role. She just rounds out the the number 12 for the, the record. Which, we're not two yet, Dinah's only number 11. Because after Dinah's birth, we have one final baby to consider. Rachel's son, verse 22. Then God remembered Rachel, and God gave heed to her and opened her womb. So she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. She named him Joseph, saying, May the Lord give me another son. As Moses writes this, he circles all the way back to Rachel and kind of bookends the passage with the report of her barrenness. And in, in verse 31 of 29, when we started our verses tonight, we were told Rachel was barren. Now we're told God opens her womb. At last, her prayers are answered. She's watched 11 children be born. At last, God gives evidence that he hears her prayers For years she's been praying. All along the indication in the language is she's been praying that God would give her a a child. And at last, God reverses how he has been dealing with her. He closed her womb, now he opens it. And at last, God gives Rachel the son, Joseph. I I didn't mention it earlier, but with Reuben, Leah's first son, the, the sound plays on his name, I said there's the sound plays. It actually occurs two times in the explanations that surrounded his name. The same thing happened with Zebulun's name, Leah's final son. The first son and last son of Leah have this double wordplay on their name. Now Moses uses a double wordplay on the name Joseph when he explains the name again. Joseph, in the sound of it, will remind Rachel that God's taken away her reproach, that she's no longer barren. But at the same time, the name Joseph literally means, may he add. And that expresses her prayer that having born one son, God will give her more, that God might graciously not allow her to bear another. It will be some time before Benjamin is born. That record comes later. But, but here, as we end this birth record, that Moses gives us this compact record of, of the history of the nation, this record ends pointing to, to that time to come when the 12th son will actually be born. That takes us through our text. In Genesis this evening. But again, let's ask ourselves, what can we learn from it? What can we learn from this record here of, of 12 births with very little information other than what the names mean? Well, I think there are two ideas that really are expressed in our text this evening. Ideas that are not new. We've seen them in other places in Genesis, but, but now they're here again and, and the ideas are not unrelated. They're tied together for us through this record. To, to begin with, We should see the simple truth that that God can fulfill his promises. God can. He's promised things and he can fulfill it. He can do what he said he would do. God promised Jacob that he'd have many descendants. Well, by the end of our text, Jacob already has 12 children. We can learn that it really doesn't matter if complications arise from our perspective. It doesn't matter if, if things do not unfold the way we expect things to unfold. What, what we can be sure of is, is that God will fulfill his promises. Think about the week that we're celebrating now. Today, we remembered, as I mentioned this morning, Jesus entered Jerusalem to, to all kinds of shouts of acclamation. Victorious expectations. were, we're filling the thoughts of, of all of Jesus' followers. Yet by the end of the week, Jesus dies on a cross. That was certainly not the way his followers at the beginning of the week expected the week would end. They knew that God had promised that he would provide a Savior for his people. They knew a Messiah was coming. But they never expected that the path would lead through the cross. The cross appeared from their perspective, put an end to all of their expectations. We know because we're Further yet, on the other side of the cross, that that was the very way God fulfilled his promises. Well, the same continues to hold true. God will do what he has said. He will give us strength to remain faithful regardless of the pressures that society brings up on us. He will give us a way out of every temptation. He will help us grow to be more like Christ. He will do all the things he has said he would do. He can fulfill his promises. We can trust him, regardless of how the circumstances may look from our perspective. We can trust God. He will do what he said he would do, and we can expect that day in and day out, his plan will unfold so that his promises will come about. So, again, this is not a new idea. We, we understand this idea, but we've seen it again because we've seen it unfold here in these births. God can do what he said. He, God can fulfill his promises but we need to add the understanding to the idea that God can fulfill his promises. Let's add the idea without eliminating all the consequences of our sinful actions. We wish this part wasn't there. God can fulfill his promises without eliminating all the consequences of our sinful actions. If you get down to it, we really want God to ignore our sins. We, we want... God to to wipe not only the guilt from our record, but but let's take the consequences away as well. But God doesn't work that way. Jacob's way of handling things in a deceptive manner had consequences that, that messed up his family. His pattern of deceptiveness came to roost when he was deceived and ended up with these two wives. His failure to then to love his wives equally, to, to not embrace them as a family that, that filled the family with conflict. Jacob, noticed was essentially absent from the record. He's just bouncing around there. His failure to deal with the conflict only added to the tension and the rivalry that, that increased. Nothing Jacob did... And for that matter, nothing Jacob did not do, nothing that deals with Jacob, hindered God's ability to fulfill his promises. But everything Jacob did, and everything Jacob did not do, added to the environment of tension in his family. The dysfunction that, that develops over the years, those are consequences of, of these sinful actions. Actions of Jacob, actions of Leah, actions of Rachel, so on. God did not eliminate all of the consequences. And the same again holds true for us. We've all contributed many sinful actions to the, the messy situations that we find in our lives. Yes, some of the messiness in our lives is simply because we live in a sin-messed world, but we've contributed plenty of our own. The messiness of our lives do not mean or does not mean that the God is not fulfilling his promises often the messiness of our lives is just evidence of past sinful actions and living in a sin-filled world. And those sin-filled actions in this sin-filled world, they continue to produce ongoing consequences. We're to learn from the past sinful actions so that we don't repeat them, but we have no reason to expect that God will eliminate all the consequences of our sinful actions what we can be confident of is even as these consequences are there, they will not impede God fulfilling his promises. God can fulfill his promises without eliminating all consequences of our sinful actions. As I said at the outset, the birth of a new baby is an exciting time, or it should be at least in our lives. There's clearly excitement with each birth in our passage as at least the, the mother who bore the child was excited. There's always some excitement here. And it's evidence that God was fulfilling his promises. At the same time, we also see that these births added tension to this family because there was consequences of prior sinful actions that that piled in. And from that combination, we can make this observation that God can fulfill his promises without eliminating all consequences of our sinful actions. Let's pray. Father, We've went through a passage that, at first glance, doesn't appear to hold much for us, but as we look at it, there's much here. I pray that you would help us to learn what you've given to us, that you are a faithful God, a God who will do all that he has promised, will bring his promises about, but, Father, that we also can recognize that the consequences of our past sinful actions will remain they will not impede you, but, but we will have to deal with them and trust you through them. And Father, we know that the ultimate goal that you have for us, the ultimate purpose is that we would praise you for your great wisdom in working out your plan perfectly. That as we go through the challenges of life, you are changing us to be more like Christ. For it's in his name we pray, amen.